Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the prayer practice. Great to see you. Welcome. My name is John Mark. If you're new, we're visiting. Really happy you're here. Hey, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Um, if you need a Bible, just slip your hand up in the air, air and one will make its way to you. Can I just say, I'm a fan of the Codex, like none of this Bible app stuff. That's just, you're just asking for distraction and like, it's only half as inspired if you read it on an app, you know? Okay, that's not actually true. But um, if you have a Bible, I really do encourage you to actually Take it with you to church on Sunday nights, and uh, if you don't have one, just slip your hand up. Luke 11. At Bridgetown Church, we believe that to follow Jesus, which is what we're all about, is to organize your life around three goals. One is be with Jesus. Two is become like Jesus. And three is do what he did. And in order to do that, we believe that we have to Order, organize our lives around a set of practices or what in church history are usually called spiritual disciplines, all of which are based on the life and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And each and every one is a means to an end. The end is that last song, the secret place. That's language right out of the teachings of Jesus. This place where you go with God and are in relationship with the Father. And so basically what that looks like is every few months we take on a practice from the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And right now we're a few weeks into a practice on prayer. And each week we're teaching on a different type of prayer on Sunday. And then our Bridgetown community, we practice it. And up on the docket for this week is intercessory prayer, which just makes me sound really pretentious to say that word. Some of you are thinking, what is intercessory? Well, we'll get there in a minute. It's a word that's used in the New Testament. For now, basically, it just means asking God to do stuff. Um, So let's start off here in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished... One of his apprentices said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, well, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come for me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks you for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg? My kids have never asked me for an egg, but okay. (laughs) Will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more 
Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I love that opening line, Lord, teach us to pray. That is essentially our goal in this season at Bridgetown Church, to learn how to pray, for the most part, from Jesus of Nazareth. But you know, you don't start with how. I love Simon Sinek's framework of why, what, how. If you don't know about that, Google start with why and TED Talk, you're welcome. Here's the deal. It's not just that most of us don't know how to pray. We wake up in the morning and we have a set time and three minutes in our mind is all over the place and we just reach for our phone in defeat. It's deeper than that. It's that a lot of us don't even know what to pray Like, is it okay to pray for myself, or do I only have to pray for Gerald? Is it okay um, to pray for my job interview, or a new apartment, or a new car, if it's electric or a hybrid? Is Jesus okay with that? Or does it have to be only for healing, or this, that, the other? But it's deeper than that. Honestly, a lot of us don't even know why to pray. Didn't Jesus himself actually say something like, the Father knows what you need before you ask him? Which, which is great, Jesus, but that kind of begs the question, why ask in the first place then? So a lot of us don't even get the what or the why behind prayer. All sorts of questions. So here's the deal. Put your finger right here in Luke, Luke 11. We'll come back in just a few minutes and work through Jesus' teaching line by line. First, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Let's back up the train and talk about the why and the what around prayer before we get to the how of prayer. I want to make three points about prayer from the story that Jesus grew up reading that today we call the Old Testament. First, Genesis chapter 1, have a look at verse 36. I'm sorry, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, what? Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And here it is again, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Point one, if you're taking notes, write this down. God's original intent was for free, intelligent, creative human beings to collaborate with him on running the world. That phrase, the image of God, does not mean what a lot of people think it means. If you were an ancient Near Eastern Hebrew or an Egyptian or a Babylonian, any kind of ancient Near Eastern soul, and you read that phrase, the image of God, you knew exactly what that was. That was the king. One and one and, one and only one human being in all of the world was the image of God. It was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was called Amun-Ra, or the image of Ra, the sun god, the head of the Egyptian pantheon. The idea here in this story is that, no, all human beings are created in the image of God, not just Pharaoh and his oligarchy. Every man, every woman, you were created 
to rule. That's that next line, to rule over the earth, under God's authority and over the world itself, to stand at the interface between the creator and the creation, not as an android with no free will or as a puppet on a string, but as a royal son or a royal daughter, as a prince, as a princess, to rule with the king of the universe over the world. That's to collaborate with God in writing human history. That's what you were created for. But then, if you know the story, turn the page, chapter 2, have a look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Notice that line, you are free. Humanity is free to choose between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And don't get hung up on reading the Bible's literature. Is this myth? Is this history? Don't get off track here. The choice is between allegiance to the king and his kingdom or rebellion against the king and his kingdom. And what does human choose? Tragically, if you turn the page, chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Point two, if you're taking notes, due to the freedom that God built into human nature, the world has gone horribly wrong. The idea here in the story is that the root problem in the world is not lack of access to education or clean water or the wrong type of government or the wrong political party in power or socioeconomic equality. Those are all symptoms The root problem is that the human heart is bent out of shape in the wrong direction. And the rest of the story that we now call the Old Testament is about God's solution to that problem. Turn for one more story to Exodus chapter 32. The next book over, Exodus chapter 32. I just want to read over you a well-known story that Jesus would have grown up reading all through elementary school, as a teenager, as a young man. Exodus chapter 32, fast forward, if you know the story of the Bible, God is starting to kind of put the human project back on track through a family uh, with a, a man named Abraham and his sons and his sons' sons and his daughters and his daughters' daughters and on and so on and so forth into an entire nation. But we quickly realize that the nation that is supposed to be the solution to the problem is still part of the problem. Chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So classic, like just no gratitude anymore, you know? Aaron answered him, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Skip down to the end of verse 6. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and to drink and got up to indulge in revelry. I'm not exactly sure what revelry is, but I'm pretty sure it's bad. It's like lots of sex and dancing and secular music, you know? (laughs) Then, 
the Lord, <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, some of you are like new to church. You're like, wait, I don't get it. You had to have been there in the 80s, okay? It was a thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. I love it, by the way. Notice God's like, your people. Those are your people, Moses, not mine. That's like, you know, when your child is misbehaving and you're like, Tammy, that's your side of the family. That is not a Comer thing. That's all how to gee, all right? That's all you. Your people have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They bow down to it and sacrifice to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone. Notice the language here. Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. I'll never forget this one time I was in class um, with Dr. Gary Bashir's over at Western Seminary and we were reading through the story and we got to that bizarre line right there. And I remember Gary said in front of the class, this is God processing his emotions with a human partner. And our whole class was like, wait, what? God processing his emotions with the human partner. Yes, that's what it is. It's a conversation with Moses, God's friend. And that's what prayer is. It's a conversation between God and his friends. Keep reading. 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? So now it's like the blame game. You brought the people out with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the face, off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, and here's the key word, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all this land I promised you, and it will be their inheritance forever. He's quoting God back to God. This is what Christians back in the day used to call contending prayer. In the Reformation, Martin Luther called it conquering God. Notice that for Moses, prayer is not passive. Okay, God, whatever you want, start over with me. I am awesome. Okay. No, for him, it's, it's, it's active. He's striving with God. There, hear me out here. There is a time to pray, your will be done. And there is a time to argue with God and say, absolutely not, not that. That's not a good idea, God. That can't be right. That can't be your will. That can't, that can't be how the story goes. And to contend with God, to strive, to argue, to lament, to plead your case before God. I love the audacity here. Like you hear this conversation between Moses and God and it, it reads almost like they are on equal footing, but they aren't on equal footing and that's what makes it so provocative and subversive. There's this elasticity and back and forth dialogue and openness to God. And Moses' prayer here is that God would relent and watch what happens, 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. That word relented in Hebrew is the word naham. Can you say that? It's a fascinating word. It can be translated relent. I think that's the best word we have in English for it. It's actually translated all through the NIV as repent whenever it's used for human beings. That's really interesting. So God repented. Or depending on your version of the Bible, it's also translated God changed his mind. So wait a minute. 
It's saying here that, that God nahamed, he relented, he repented, he changed his mind. I cannot tell you how often I read a scholar or a teacher or whoever bending over backwards to explain this line away. Well, I know it says that he changed his mind, but obviously he didn't really change his mind. Like God, we know from systematic theology, from Greek philosophy, that God is omniscient, there's nothing he does not know, and he's immutable, he does not change, and yada, yada, yada. That's funny because it says he changed his mind. Like it's weird that it doesn't actually mean what it says. That's funny how that works. The reality is God isn't the unmoved mover of Aristotle and Greek philosophy. He is the relational, dynamic, back and forth, argue in a tent with Moses, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the language of Jesus, he is a father who responds when his children pray. And this is not a lower view of, uh, lower view of God, but a higher view of God. He would be less of a God if he were not open to good ideas from free, intelligent, creative beings that he's in relationship with. I would be less of a father if I said to Jude, Moses, and Sunday, what do you guys want to do today? I don't actually mean that. Only I know what's fun to do. <laughs> right? And if Moses had an idea and I said, I'm sorry, that, I did not generate that. Clearly, it's a bad idea. I would be less of a father. The theologian Karl Barth called this the holy mutability of God. The holy mutability of God. Prayer can move God's heart and with it move God's hand. Meaning your life is going one way, you pray, God responds and it goes another way. You're on one trajectory, you pray, God responds and now you're on another trajectory. In fact, there are stories all through the Old Testament where that happens and it's a bit scary. Be careful what you pray for. God might actually say yes to it. Now, thankfully, he's a good, loving father who knows when to say yes and when to say no, but you have a role to play. Prayer is just this. It's talking with God about what the two of you are doing together, and you play a key role in human history. All of that leads me to point three, and it's this. Prayer is a relational collaboration whereby we join with God to put the world to rights. It is how we take up our rightful place in the image of God as royal sons and royal daughters and we collaborate with God in running the world to bend human history in the right direction. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal, also a mathematician, just a genius of a man, said this about prayer. God has instituted prayer so as to confer upon his creatures the dignity of being causes. Now, three of you are philosophy majors and you love that. Everybody else is like, what does that mean? Um, Sky Jatani, a friend of mine and one of my favorite writers right now, he interprets Pascal this way, quote, we are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama, but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawing into communion with him and they're taking up our privileged role as his people. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of his world. I love that last line. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of his world. So to recap, one, God's original intent was for free, intelligent, creative human beings to collaborate with him on running the world. Two, due to the freedom that God built into the human nature, the world has gone horribly wrong. If you don't believe me, read the comments on YouTube. Three, 
prayer, which is like the cesspool of Western civilization, all right? Prayer is a relational exchange whereby we join with God to put the world to rights. Now, this is the story that Jesus grew up reading, that the odds are he put to memory by the time he was a teenager. Yes, it was an oral culture. He was a rabbi. Genesis to Malachi memorized. And it's the story that shaped Jesus' view of prayer in general and intercessory prayer in particular. More on that in just a minute. Now, with all of that in mind, now we're ready for Luke 11. So turn back. Hopefully your finger is still there or a bookmark or something. Turn back to Luke chapter 11. And let's work through it. So we read the first part of the Lord's Prayer two weeks ago, verse 2. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Notice that right in there, in particular with that key line, your kingdom come, which in my opinion is kind of the key to unlock the Lord's Prayer. Notice that Jesus is tapping into the story of the Old Testament. He assumes that God's original intent was for free, creative, intelligent human beings to rule over the world. Your kingdom come. This is the kingdom language. Two, he assumes that due to freedom, the world has gone horribly wrong. Your kingdom come means what? What, 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 is Jesus, what does he assume right there? Your kingdom come, that the kingdom of God isn't all the way here yet. In Jesus' mind's eye, heaven is the place where God's will is done all the time. Earth is the place where God's will is done some of the time. Because on earth, there are other wills at play. There's my will and yours and about seven plus other billion people on the planet. There's angelic will and demonic will or spiritual will, if you would. Nature, in a sense, has a will, and of course, God at the center of all of it has a will. We'll talk more about this next week. But there are all sorts of wills at play. And third, Jesus assumes that prayer is a relational collaboration whereby we join with God to see the kingdom of God come on earth. Your kingdom come. You pray for that. That's how you see the kingdom of God come. It's almost like Jesus grew up reading his Bible or something like that. And I just want you to see that for Jesus, prayer... Man, first off, it it actually makes a difference. Like, it's not just a, okay, religious guilt trip, check the box, prayer, morning prayer, okay. No, for Jesus, it actually makes a difference in the kingdom of God in your day and your age. I would argue that for Jesus, if I'm reading him right here and in other places, that for Jesus, the primary way we usher in the kingdom of God is through prayer. Very few of us actually believe that. Most of us think the primary way we usher in the kingdom of God is through hard work. Whether that's preaching the gospel or justice in our city or healing or you fill in the blank. Very few of us actually believe, no, that stuff, is, it all matters. But the primary way that we join with God to usher in the kingdom of God in the longer version of that prayer in Portland as it is in heaven is through prayer. What if The reason that we're so frustrated all the time is because we don't actually believe this. Our generation is all about protest, especially in Portland. We're like really good at that. And social media, and we practically invented the Facebook rant. We're like the WikiLeaks generation. It's like all power is corrupt. Tear down the system. What is the system? I don't know, but tear it down. Like, it's so our generation. What if we were to channel all of that energy and angst 
and anger and frustrated longing for a better world into prayer instead of into Facebook or a mob, but rather into the Father's heart. And I get it's been a really hard year in our nation. If there ever was a time, regardless of which side you're on on the political thing, if there was ever a time when the world needed some decent government, it was right now. But what if we were to put our hope not in Washington, D.C., but in heaven? Not in a man or a woman, a politician or a party, but in Jesus and Jesus alone. And pray for the kingdom of God to come, for the will of God to be done in our nation and around the world as it is in heaven. Again, the theologian Karl Barth said this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So those of you that just wanna like go protest something every weekend, welcome to Portland, we're so, you'll fit in just great here. Just pr- what if you were to just let all of that out, even tonight in prayer to God? I just want you to see how Jesus is tapping into this story of the Old Testament. Now, we left off here a few weeks ago in verse four, but Jesus is not done. Keep reading, verse five. Then Jesus said to them, so here's a, a little story. Suppose you have a friend, hypothetical situation, and you go to him at midnight, right? You know, whatever. You're like single, you live in Southeast, you stay up late, whatever. You go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. This is the ancient Near East. Hospitality is like, you know, right at the top of the list. So huge problem. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. You just, I just love this story. We don't think of Jesus as funny. This is a funny story, all right? It's lost in translation and a few millennia, but it's funny. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, I love it. This is a genre of teaching that was popular in the first century. It's called how much more. We'll read that phrase in just a minute. Basically, in it, a rabbi usually would compare and contrast one bad thing with another good thing in order to make a point. Jesus is saying, listen, if you can get a grumpy, lazy, narcissistic neighbor, if you can get somebody like that to answer your prayer, so to speak, how many of you have like, like a neighbor that's just less than awesome? Yeah, I've, everywhere I've lived, I've always had somebody that's just been like, where did you come from and when will you move? Please, <laughs> please let it be soon, you know? I've always had one, for the most part, great, and there's always one, so just imagine that person in your mind's eye, then repent and then come back, okay? So just, if you can get somebody like that to answer your prayer just because you knock and you annoy and you text and you email and you don't let up, how much more can you get a loving, generous, selfless father with good intentions toward you to answer your prayers? All you have to do is ask. So I say to you, nine, Ask and it will be given to you. I love this. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Jesus is saying three very simple things. Like you don't need a PhD or you don't need to go to seminary. Like this is really straight down the middle. One, he's saying ask. Ask. Ask the Father. Two, he's saying ask with shameless audacity. I love that language. 
If you have, um, it can also be translated from the Greek as impudence, if you have the ESV, all of those of you who are impudent, and persistent in another translation. He's saying just, just like straight up go for it. Ask, ask, think of a child to a father. My kids ask me for all sorts of outlandish things, right? Like just ridiculous. Can we have a Ferrari? No, we can't have a Ferrari. Like what do you think? No, like whatever. But please, dad, what if somebody gave you $100,000? Then could we have a Ferrari? And like this is a real question a few weeks ago. I'm like, no, like your generation is like, you don't, like you're going to, five years from now, we'll all be dri- like not driving cars anymore and they'll all be electric and we won't even have to own a car. It'll be awesome. And you want a Ferrari. What is wrong with you? So, but there's just a, a shameless audacity to a child with his or her father. And three, Jesus is saying, don't stop asking with shameless audacity. Don't stop. In Greek, it's, it's a bit confusing because we don't have an equivalent in the English language, in English grammar, but there's a tense here that can be translated, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, just don't go away from the door. Just knock, 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 I'm not home, knock, knock, I'm not here, knock, I'm in bed, knock, knock, like just don't stop, don't let up. And notice that for Jesus, this is really important, all of this is rooted again in his view of God as a father. 11, which of you fathers, and if you're dad here tonight, this will make a ton of sense to you. If your son asks for a fish, which my sons have never done that, so I'm good, um, but will give him a snake instead, this is funny, like this is, this is kinda cool. Or if he asks for an egg, well, maybe this was a thing back in the day, like daddy, can I please have an egg? Well. <laughs> will give him a scorpion. If you then, and I love how straight up Jesus is, though you are evil, <laughs> thanks Jesus, um, if you then know how to give good gifts to your children, here it is again, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Notice that Jesus is just driving his point home. One of the first things you learn about the New Testament is that uh, this was before a word processor, before paper, before Gutenberg, and so everything's about economy. So when you have a teaching or a story that takes up a lot of space, that's like a, whoa, slow down and pay attention. So here, this is not a, a short teaching. This is a very long teaching on prayer. And notice that Jesus is kind of saying the same thing over and over and over again, ask ask with shameless audacity. Don't stop asking with shameless audacity. Why is he just harping on this? Could it be that one, because we don't ask? Seriously, how many of us have problems and issues in our life that we've never prayed about? How many of us are angry or upset or mad at God, at the church, at the city, at life, about things that we've never actually prayed for? I'm shocked how often when we pray for healing over people, and this is not a slam on anybody, it's just, I notice it, it's really interesting. I'll ask somebody who comes forward for prayer, have you asked God to heal you? I'm shocked, do you know people almost never say yes? Almost, it's really rare for somebody to say yes, I've been praying for God to heal me for two years. If that does happen, it's really rare. Most of the time, no, I've never asked God to heal me. We'll talk next week about unanswered prayer, right? Because if you have any cynic in you, which is pretty much all of us in Portland, right now there's all sorts of yeah buts, yeah buts, yeah buts in the back of your mind, right? So we'll talk, I'm doing an entire teaching next week on unanswered prayer. We'll get there. Unanswered prayer is a huge problem, but you know what an even greater problem is? Unasked prayer. 
The reality is that most of us don't even ask in the first place. I don't know why. Is it, is it fatalism? We just think what's going to happen is going to happen with or without my prayers. We don't actually believe in prayer or really get the why. Is it that? Is it self-sufficiency? We just think, you know, I have a good job. I have health insurance. I have a Twitter account. I have a degree from whatever. I don't need to pray about it. Is it that? Is it something else? I'm not sure. But could it be that Jesus is harping on this because one, we don't even ask in the first place. And two, because when we ask, we ask with timidity rather than with shameless audacity. I think that often, I need to be careful how I word this, but often in our desire to please God and to come under the authority of the Father in a good, healthy way, and to pray with Jesus, your will be done. That's all good. I pray that on a regular basis. But I can't help but wonder if sometimes we forget that God is our Father. And in the same way that you want to please your Father and give in to His desires, guess what? He wants to please you. He wants to give in to your desires. Now, He loves you enough to override your desires when they're really lousy, right? And if you don't believe me, like the worst thing God could ever do for you is answer all of your prayers. And if you don't believe me, watch Aladdin, great film from the 90s before Disney went down, all right? It's fantastic. Like every story, every fable, every myth about the genie in the bottle, like that, it never ends well. It ne- well, Aladdin kind of does, but it gets bad before it gets good, you know? So true. But still, we forget that absolutely your will be done, but we forget that God is your Father and he cares about what is going on in your life. And third, could it be it's because we're so quick to give up. It's tiring to pray in general. Am I right? Prayer, this, this type of prayer, the asking God prayer, and at times it just feels like hard work. It kind of is. And it's tiring, especially when you pray day after week after month after year and nothing or a little bit but not what you are asking for. It's so easy to just pray once, twice, three times, a month, two, three months, and then just give up, just throw in the towel. Man, I just can't help but wonder. We'll talk especially next week. There are all sorts of reasons that we don't get the answer to our prayer. God saying no is just one of many reasons. Remember, there are other wills at play. We'll talk about that next week. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. It takes time to figure out, is this God saying no? Or is God actually saying no? Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, don't give up, shameless audacity, come before the Father, don't give in. Jesus here is driving the point home, like over making his point. Ask, ask with shameless audacity and Don't stop asking with shameless audacity. Now, this is where we get this idea of intercessory prayer. This is real kind of odd church language. That word intercession is actually, this was a shock to me, only used twice in the New Testament. Here's the main example from Paul's letter to Timothy a few decades after Jesus. He writes this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, there it is, and thanksgiving be made for all people, so fitting fitting text for our nation right now, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness 
and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. In Greek, that word there that we translate intercession is intuxis, and it more, it more literally means to petition a king. That's what intercession is. It's to come before a king, somebody with power and authority, and petition, or that can also be translated to make a request or to ask for something. And the word is only used right here and in one other place, but the idea is all over the New Testament. We are to petition the king for all sorts of things in line with his kingdom. I love this from the theologian Walter Wink. And just let this sink over you. Intercession is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised intercessors visualize an alternative future to the one apparently faded by the momentum of current forces. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. These shapers of the future are the intercessors. How good is that? How many of you want to be the intercessors? Want to be a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability, whatever it is, on which they have fixed their imaginations? So our practice for the coming week is just that. It's intercessory prayer. It's to petition the king. It's to imagine with the Holy Spirit an alternate reality and an alternate future and to believe that future into being. All of our practice is available at practicingtheway.org slash prayer. We have two exercises for the week ahead. One um, is active and the other is more passive, but in a good way. The first is prayer cards. Do you have this from the front? Did you get one on your way in? Okay, this is a tool that myself and a few others started using recently, and it is over-the-top helpful. Uh, Just give it a try. You might love it. You might hate it. Just give it a try for a week or two. It's pretty self-explanatory. It says prayer card at the top. You write in a name or a subject, and then there are a few, and I just have one. I have one for each of my kids, one for my wife, one for my community, one for our staff, one for you guys, one for my friends, and one for myself, something like that. I think I have about 10 or something all together. And then just write down a few bullet point prayers. Remember to be specific. Generic prayers get what kind of answers? Generic answers. Specific prayers get what? Specific answers. So be specific. Date it. If you don't know exactly what to pray for, and that happens to me on a regular basis. I'm like, just a few days ago, I was starting to pray for something. I'm like, I had no idea how to pray for it. Then just give it a minute. Let the Holy Spirit spark a scripture in your mind's eye, and if nothing else, pray that scripture. Get your vocabulary for prayer out of the Bible, and then date it, and keep this with you in your back pocket. I just have a, I have a pile right here in the front of my Bible that I take with me, open up every single morning, and I just linger over. I don't pray through every single card every day. I just pull out two or three, linger for a minute or two over it, pray one or two or three of the bullet points, and that way, like, these are actually actually in my regular prayer life. It's a great way, by the way, when somebody um, says, will you pray for me? If you're anything like me, I always, like, do you ever say no? I don't. But um, what I say all the time is, sure. What I mean by sure is, 
I won't actually pray for you because I don't have like intercession in my daily routine or any kind of organized way to pray, but I have really good intentions right now and I, my heart is good. Like I really mean well toward you, but the reality is I have an iPhone and a job and three children and I live in the city and I'm kind of distracted all the time. So if you come to mine, it'll probably be when I'm like on my bicycle on the way to work. I might remember to pray for you really fast, but the, I probably won't, so sorry. That's what it actually means when I say I'll pray for you, okay? So some of you are like, you're horrible. You're just as bad. <laughs> There's like four of you that mean what you say, all right? So please pray for me, all right? Um, but it's, it's really, this is a great way. Just keep a few extra blank ones and just write in a name, write in a few things and actually pray over that person or that situation. Second exercise that is more passive, but I think in a really healthy way, we call praying the room. And this is a, a form of imaginative prayer, really helpful for me in my prayer life, where you just create a little space, close your eyes if you want, and you imagine in your mind's eye a room. Uh, for me, it's my home office and our last house, which was kind of our, it was my happy place. And I imagine that home office, I'm in my chair, and you just let the Holy Spirit bring somebody or a situation, but usually it's a person, into the room, and that's the person you pray for. And then before you pray, you just let the Holy Spirit spark something to pray for. And you maybe just ask, Holy Spirit, what do I pray over this person? And then a scripture comes to mind or a specific request or a prayer or whatever, and you just pray that. And pray over one person. If you have time, pray over a handful, whatever you want. And just let the Holy Spirit. I just started doing this recently, and it is just so life-giving for me. So I would just say I have found both of these exercises really helpful. Intercession, some aspects of my prayer life I think are, are strong or getting stronger. Other aspects, in particular intercessory prayer or asking God, is like really weak sauce in my life. And both of these exercises are really helpful for me in my prayer. And I would just say give them a try. And if you love them, great. And if not, try something else. Remember that any kind of technique with prayer, who's it for? Is it for you or for God? Which one? It's, it's for you. It's not for God. God's not like, oh, this is the way you pray. Like, this is the technique. Don't, that was the wrong kind of room. That was, the, that was not, you were outdoor. You can't have an outdoor room. You live in Portland. Like it has, no, like this is for you to focus in a busy digital age with a phone, stress, traffic, living in the city, how to actually focus in on prayer. So that's our practice for the week ahead with each of our communities. That said, um, let's end just by really fast talking about how we end a prayer. How, how do most people end a prayer? There's a very American church line. What is it? Yeah, but even before the amen, what do people say? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, where does that even come from? Well, it comes from the teachings of Jesus, and we'll read one of them next week, where Jesus would say, hey, pray in my name. One of the things we forget is that that, is, that line isn't, it was, it was never supposed to be a line that you tack on to the end of your prayer, like a magic incantation, like the open sesame of the kingdom of God. It's like, pray, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. Like, no, 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 that's, it's not a line you pray at all. It's a heart posture of faith in prayer. Um, Larry Hurtado, like top shelf academic scholar, he writes this, to pray in Jesus' name means that we enter into Jesus' status in God's favor and invoke Jesus' standing with God. 
So to pray in Jesus' name is to come before God, come before into the throne room of the universe, so to speak, with the king of the universe, but come not as a beggar off the street, but as a son, as a daughter, adopted into the family, and if people question you at the door, you just say, I'm with that guy. Who? Jesus. Okay, you're in. Come on in. He's your pass into the Father. To pray in Jesus' name is to come before God as a royal son, as a royal daughter, to take up your rightful place with shame shameless audacity and to join God in running the world through prayer. That's what it is. So if you're going to pray that line in Jesus' name, pray it at the beginning of your prayer, not at the end. And end your prayer however you want. A few days ago, we were around the dinner table, and um, once in a while I ask, hey, does any, any of you kids want to pray? And I don't ask it very often because normally they say no, and then I just feel like a failure as a dad. So... But I was in a good mood, and I said, do any of you kids want to pray? And Moses is the least likely to say, you know, me. And, and so if you know Moses, he's my eight-year-old, and he's just really introverted and kind of crazy, but in a good way, but kind of crazy. And, and so you never know exactly what's going on in there. And, and I think, like, sometimes I think, man, there's just not a lot of spirituality yet. I mean, he's eight, but there's just not a lot there yet. But then once in a while, he'll pray, and his prayers are just thoughtful and intelligent and genuine and authentic and, like, not churchy at all. It's really cool. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Ah, it's a great feeling as a dad. <laughs> About every three months, I'm like, ah, right? So he goes, I want to pray. Fantastic. And then he just prays this beautiful I mean, eyes open, just kind of, he's kind of crazy, but he's awesome. <laughs> and, he, and he gets to the end, and Tammy and I are just smiling at each other, and he gets to the end, and he goes, love Moses. <laughs> and then he goes, a.k.a. amen. <laughs> so if you don't really know how to pray, end your prayer, try that one on. Love your name, a.k.a. amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.